Hey, this is Matthew Krauss, and you're listening to another episode of the podcast, Working Drummer. Today I got a chance to sit down and talk with Willie Cantu. A jazz drummer at heart, one of Willie's defining moments in his career happened at the age of 17 when he became an original member of the Buckaroos, led by Buck Owens. Touring with Buck in the 1960s led Willie to the mecca of jazz music, New York City, where he got to meet some of his heroes, like Tony Williams. And in the decades since this life-changing event, Willie continues to feed his curiosity in the world of drumming, including everything from jazz and African drumming to his passion for Scottish pipe drumming. To find out more about this podcast and other podcasts, go to workingdrummer.net. You can follow us on Twitter at working underscore drummer, also on Instagram. You can find us on iTunes where you can subscribe, and new episodes of the podcast will be sent to your smart device every week. If you like what you hear, you can leave us a review and rate the podcast. We've just started a new YouTube channel. You can find it under Working Drummer Podcast. So here is Willie Cantu. I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life, let me tell you. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Because in my 20s, I was go, you know, when I was with Buck, yeah. I always felt so um, insecure about not getting a full education. I quit school, you know. You left, you left, uh, you joined Buck when you were 17 17, years old. yeah. Right. Um, well, from Corpus Christi. Texas. Texas. Uh-huh. Born and raised? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were playing there, and... Um, Are you I recording did, now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did All a little right. bit of background, <laughs> and I, I, one of the coolest, well, I wouldn't say coolest, but one of the most interesting things that I read was the night that you met Buck was the night that JFK was assassinated. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned that to my wife, and she said, wow, in Texas? And he was in Texas, and I, I thought, oh, yeah, that's right, because it was Dallas where he was assassinated. Um, can you tell me a little bit, maybe, what that experience was like as far as you were working in a club? Okay, I had, uh, I had been, this is my first country and western job. Okay, there had been... <laughs> It's a funny little story how I ended up with a job because there were three other drummers that had that two of them that I knew, mm-hmm. uh, and they were all older than me. And the first drummer uh, had they had all gone to my same junior high school. Okay, yeah. and I'll tell you the name because it's funny too. It was called the Win Seal Win Seal mm-hmm. Junior High School, uh, Buckaroos. <laughs> Okay. Okay, that's what we were. So uh, these other guys that were older than me had, especially one that I never met, had taken the job at the Maverick Club. Mm-hmm. That's where I met Buck. And it was a new club in town. Actually, it was in North Beach. Mm-hmm. And um, he, for some reason, did not stay there very long. So he passed it on to somebody else that he knew, who was the bass drummer in the marching band. Okay. That I was in. Okay, so he didn't last too long, and he passed it on to an even older drummer who was uh, going to North Texas. He was on his way in between high finish a senior in high school probably, mm-hmm. and going to North Texas State University. Okay, he took it, 
And he did not like it at all. So he called me up, and we were pretty good friends. This is the club gig you're talking about. Exactly. Right, okay. The Maverick the Maverick Club, where, where Buck, that's where Buck, uh, where I met Buck, okay? So uh, I had quit school that year, uh, which was uh, 60, 1963. Okay. And I, I had asked permission to do that because mm-hmm. I wanted to move to New York City and play jazz, mm-hmm. study and play jazz. Yeah. So I was still in town. So this this was in September, okay? Right. So my friend Don Sowell calls up and says, "Listen, no one likes this job, but it's it's a gig, it's money in your pocket. Are you interested?" And at that time, I had be- already become a working drummer, so to speak, yeah. because I quit school, and I was already jobbing around town. I was 17. Was this the only work that you were doing? Is this how you were earning? Well, I, I was living at home, uh-huh. but that's all I was doing was just playing drums. Right. You know, and uh, through my drum teacher, I got a lot of calls. Yeah. I lived in a small city, so my drum teacher was the main guy that everybody called. Right. Uh, union gigs, okay? Oh, okay. Strictly union. And so I joined the union at a very young age. I had a car at a very young age, so I'd drive myself to jobs, mm-hmm. okay? And um, so my friend Don says, are you interested? And I hated country music. I hated the sound of Hank Williams, that real old-style nasally singing. And I thought, it's a job. Forget it. It's a job. Yeah. Go do the job. Find out what is really like you know so I said yes so I show up and I you know the the main thing is to always have an open mind sure and uh, I, I I've always had that mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so even at 17 even at 17 mm-hmm. even though I was a devout jazz drummer you know I, that's what I wanted that was but you see I grew up with Tex-Mex music Playing, you know, like wanting to play accordion in a Tex-Mex band, okay. and so, but it all led me to drums yeah. because of the marching bands. Oh, okay. You know, that's what inspired me to want to be a drummer. Okay. To begin with, so I take this job, and I'm going along. Okay, the the, the first week they said, well, we're going to have to uh, go find some uniforms. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to stick around this long to get uniforms. <laughs> so I spent a whole day looking for Western-style outfits, which I absolutely hated. Fortunately, they couldn't find enough for all the guys in the band. So I was safe yeah, yeah. for a while. So, okay. So I was there maybe a month. And during that month, they started bringing in features from Nashville. Mm. You know, like Justin Tubb, who was uh, Ernest Tubb's son, Oh. Had a popular song at that time, okay. and so they brought him in, and we backed him up. Mm-hmm. So that happened maybe a handful of times, and then I'd heard Buck Owens on the jukebox. Mm-hmm. I'd heard Ray Price. Yeah. I'd heard Jim Reeves, and I'm mentioning them because those are the ones that I liked. Oh. You know, okay. slowly I started. Picked your interest. Yeah. After, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And so country music wasn't so bad until we got on the bandstand. And the band that I played with was strictly old style, mm-hmm. you know. So, But anyway, I did the best, and I couldn't... Uh, uh, I find it funny, you say, in 1963, you were playing old, only old, <laughs> not the new stuff, but the old stuff. <laughs> well, it, it was, that's, that's, that's the sound that I remember. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very 
stiff, you know. And uh, the uh, the band leader uh, wore like a western shirt and matching western pants and boots that had like a Thunderbird on them, you know, mm-hmm. the old style uh, boots that was popular back then. And he might have worn a hat sometimes. So, uh, and he played rhythm guitar, very stiff mm-hmm. rhythm guitar. So, uh, so, okay. Uh, Upright bass. Electric, electric bass. Very boomy electric bass. I was used to playing with upright players because uh, the casuals that I, a lot of casuals that I did around town, tuxedo jobs, yeah. okay, country club and this and that, dances, they all had... Uh, uh, acoustic bass still yeah. and a lot of the music was either society music we play foxtrots mm-hmm. waltzes you know uh, tangos uh, paso doble mm-hmm. uh, you name it we I my, my drum teacher taught me all these rhythms so that I would be prepared to play yeah, like, play any job you know yeah, sure. so and at that time rock and roll was uh, like the ventures that style Okay. Just before the Beatles really kind of started making the mark. Right, right. Really close. Especially, especially in that part of Texas. Okay. okay. So uh, rock and roll didn't really figure much into music. Uh, it was, it was um, uh, brainless music, so to speak, at that time. Mm-hmm. Because if you listen to the Ventures, it was very simplistic. And, you know, it didn't really... Either you were into it or you weren't, and it didn't. It didn't really do much for me, you know. But anyway, I still did any kind of job that came around. Right, right. And uh, so, the the country style drumming that I was doing, without knowing what what to play when I went, was basically like swing style, mm-hmm. you know, okay. uh, because they the band that I played with. Uh, they did traditional country songs like Hank Williams, you know, yeah. uh, two-beat feel, yeah. mm-hmm. or they did some Bob Wills type of Western swing. So uh, my uh, interest in jazz drumming helped me kind of get that kind of together. The to shuffle, where, the feel. Well, the shuffle feel, exactly, because uh, there was no music that I played that required a shuffle feel. So I wasn't doing shuffle so much then as opposed to a swing pattern. I see. You know, and a backbeat on the snare. Yeah. Not cross stick, but they wanted to hear like a Bob Will style, what I would call now a Bob Will style of drumming. You know, okay. that's how old, you know, the, the sound style. of that band was. You know, And there was people that, that liked that. You know, that's what they came to the club for. Right. So uh, in hearing Buck Owens, I'd heard something different. And hearing uh, Ray Price on the on the records on the jukebox, there was a totally different sound coming out of the drums there. Mm-hmm. So it was influencing me, mm-hmm. and I was maybe applying it to to some of the songs on the job. Uh, so come November the twenty third, was it or twenty fourth? Kennedy's uh, assassination. Right. Okay. I, I thought I had written it. Well, down that right. was on a happened on a Saturday. Uh, the reason I remember because we did this radio show from the club at noon, right at 12 o'clock for about a half hour. It was a feature, try to bring people out to the club. 
So did you know that uh, Kennedy was in Dallas? Did you guys know? I had was I, it news? I don't or? I don't remember. It. Okay. I might have known, uh, but uh, I uh, I do recall that I, we all get to to the club, getting ready to start the show, and the 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 uh, MC, the guy that did the radio announcer, uh, Jimmy Dale, I think his name was, uh, said came up and said, you know, we're not going to do the show today because. Uh, something has happened in Dallas. The president's been shot, wow. you know, and we need to report that. So we all just kind of went home, mm -hmm. uh, sad and what yeah. have you. Yeah. But uh, Buck Owens was supposed to appear that there that night, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And what had happened the night before, as quite often happened with the band traveling, this is Buck's band, they would sometimes get in early, a day before yeah. to wherever the club was. And they would go, a couple of the guys would go hang out at the club, just check it out and, sure. and see what was happening. So that's how, that's how it happened that Don Rich, who was Buck's band leader, so to speak, and uh, Buck's right arm uh, played fiddle and uh, lead guitar. Okay. Okay. And also sang harmony. Yeah. Uh, he's... He became very famous because of those of those things with in connection with Buck. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, their steel guitar player at the time, Jay McDonald, uh, and Mel King was the drummer at the time. Okay. Uh, so those three, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Daw Holly, the bass player, okay, came out. Mm -hmm. Most of the band came out. Buck wasn't there yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, he didn't arrive till the next day. So. Uh, and so Don heard me play. Yeah. So I didn't meet I didn't meet any of the guys that night, but the next night when Buck was performing at the club, yeah, uh, we were supposed to be there and alternate bands. Gotcha. Buck decided I'm going to play the whole night. Well, the place was just about empty, no, you know, because oh, of what really? what had happened with President right. Kennedy. Sure. There weren't more than fifty people there all night. I don't think. So Buck, rather than just sit around and do nothing, I think he had to fulfill his contract. So I guess he figured it was best just to stay on the bandstand as long as possible, get through the night, yeah. and be done. So I decided, it's a good thing I decided to hang around and listen to him. And uh, I was totally amazed, because they sounded nothing like the band I played in. And I, I, I remember distinctly that from the time they started playing, I was just like in another world. I loved it. Yeah. So immediately, I couldn't get over. I had never heard music that was like right in your face, easy to listen to, but the sound was not boomy. The, the, the guitars were very bright, steel guitar, very bright, and even the, the bass, electric bass, I'd never heard an electric bass sound like that before. You could actually hear everything he was doing. Definition. That boomy sound that was popular then was not happening with this band, with Buck's band. Interesting. So I was just totally, it was like they were from Mars or somewhere else because I'd never heard. Sonically, it just was. was yeah, it just kind of just blew me away because I'd never heard anything that sounded especially so good. Everything they did sounded great. Yeah. And the drummer had a 20-inch bass drum, 
20-inch Red Sparkle Slingerland bass drum, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a snare drum, uh, a Radio King snare drum, yeah. a hi-hat, and that's it. No toms, no, no cymbals, other than just the hi-hat. And that's all he played all night long, was the cross stick and the hi-hat. And at that time, that was the Buck Owen sound yeah. for drums. Yeah. Uh, so, but you know, even... And I checked all everyone out, and I thought, you know, how can that drummer just play that one beat all night long, song after song, and it's not boring. That's that comes from when uh, you play with conviction, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you put your all you have into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it comes alive, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if it's repeated. If it sounds good, it's going to sound good. If it yeah. feels yeah, exactly. good in the rest of the band it's the right, together. It's, oh, I know. That's it's the, the right feel. Even it's just that one that, that one beat at different tempos. So yeah, yeah. that was a lesson in, in itself sure. that I stored my subconscious and used later. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't really... Regi- I mean, there was too much coming at me to... So were they looking for a new drummer? No, no, no. So... Uh, I'll try to get to that as quick as I can Uh, so I stayed there the whole night and at the end of the night uh, went up to talk to the guys and uh, I I met Don and and Doyle and everyone and Buck Mm -hmm. and uh, Doyle Holly the bass player Mm -hmm. took me off to the side and said listen uh, if anything develops out in California would you be interested in coming out and playing mm-hmm. and at that time I had plans to go to New York City yeah, right. not California you know yeah. and I said sure you know just uh, I didn't want to say no uh, right. and because uh, he wanted my phone number yeah. so I gave him my phone number so that's who knew how to get in touch with me okay the last week of, of January I got a phone call from Buck Owens asking me if I would like to join his band mm-hmm. as a permanent member mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, you know, he, I was, I was still living at home. Uh, I, I, my first thing was, I have to ask permission to leave home. <laughs> yeah, right. 17. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he said, fine. I said, uh, uh, so I said, let me talk to my parents and I'll call you back. And he kind of explained, he said, you know, uh, we're, I had no idea who Buck Owens really was at that time, mm-hmm. other than just on the jukebox I'd heard. Right. I'd heard him, and then I saw him live. But that did not mean any. I didn't know anything about going out on the road or bands that worked on the road, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that lifestyle, I knew absolutely nothing about, wow. you know. Yeah. And so he said, he said, he said, when he said, uh, we'll be doing some traveling, he shouldn't have said some traveling. Uh, he said, uh, the, you'll do all the records, we'll do TV shows. But all of that just kind of just went by me so quick, it didn't really register. And so I, and, it's a, and, and it pays so much. And he says, I'll send you the, the money for, for the plane fare. Uh, call me the next, let, let me know by tomorrow if you're doing this or not. So I talked to my parents, called him back, everything was go. He sent me the money that I needed to fly out to California. Do you remember how much, like, just curious, the price of a plane ticket to Corpus Christi? 
I don't. I no. really don't. I really don't remember. So this was Bakersfield that you Bakersfield, yeah. Okay. So I uh, I flew out. Uh, he called me like probably on on a Monday or Tuesday, mm -hmm. and then by Saturday, I flew out to uh, to uh, Bakersfield. Yeah. And so my route was to go from from Corpus Christi, Texas, to Dallas, from Dallas to L.A., yeah. from L.A. to Bakersfield. That's yeah. Okay, gotcha. so uh, I get there and it's a really foggy day. I knew nothing about Bakersfield, yeah. And this is before Bakersfield was known for the Bakersfield sound. Okay, you know. Uh, and so uh, I get there and I don't see any of the guys that I remember seeing at the club. And it was all these women converged on me. It was the wives. <laughs> <laughs> they were there to meet the new drummer in the band. So Buck's wife was there. Uh, the welcoming committee. Yeah, exactly. Two of the, the steel guitar player's wife was there. The, the lead player's wife was there, except the bass player. She, she, she had a big family, so she couldn't be there for some reason. But anyway, and so Buck's wife explained the reason why he and the band weren't there. Is they were in uh, Hollywood at Capitol Records recording what became uh, a major hit for him, Together Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. which featured steel guitar, and My Heart Skips a Beat. I don't know if you've ever heard that, that not song. This, no, I know. Together okay. Again, yes, I have. But no. Okay, well, Heart Skips a Beat, it's got this little tom roll uh -huh. yeah, that, that, that's, that distinguishes it from any other Buck Owens song. But the drummer, and I found this out later, the drummer was Mel Taylor. Who was a drummer with Adventures? Oh, interesting. He yeah. he was a freelance session player. Thus the tom roll. Huh? <laughs> Maybe that's how the tom roll. Made well, it, there it? you go. <laughs> so he was he was uh, with Adventures at the time, mm -hmm. and he was basically a studio player on call for anything, and and so he he could play. And you can you can hear uh, his sound is is a lot looser than the way I ended up playing or the previous drummer. What was great about Buck is he forged everything into his own sound. He developed his own way of singing and just the sound of his voice. He sounded like no one else. And do but, you think that helped define the Bakersfield sound? Well, I, in, in, my, in my opinion, uh, my humble opinion, uh, Buck Owens is the Bakersfield sound. Right. Without Buck Owens, even though Merle Haggard was yet to come, uh, what defined the Bakersfield sound for me was the sound of the guitars, mm. the high harmony of Don Rich with Buck, mm -hmm. and those songs, you know, that shuffle pattern that, uh, that all of Buck's drummers before me played, mm -hmm. you know, that defined the Bakersfield sound. Yeah. Once you heard that twangy, bright, Telecaster sound and those high harmonies, man. It's like there's nothing else, nothing else in the world like it, you know. And mind you, there were a lot of people uh, that had been in, in Bakersfield uh, that had made, were already recording, uh, had solo singing careers before Buck did, uh, and they made records. 
their sound did not compare to Bucks. Bucks was the individual sound that yeah. I think yeah. became the definitive. Okay, yeah. Yeah. and mind you, there there were a lot of other people out there before Buck and after, but uh, really, there's really only one champion of that story mm-hmm. is Buck Owens. Mm-hmm. You know, you take Buck Owens out of the equation, and there's no sound. And what are we talking about? Sound. Yeah. You know, there's there's more than just the sound of his voice. You see, he was a guitar player to begin with. Yeah. Before he sang, mm-hmm. and that's the way he played. I'm a year away from being 70 years old. Okay. Okay. So this was when I was 17. Right. Okay. I've I've I, I lived that era of the yeah, 60s sure and a lot of different ways not just in country music but being involved in country music with buck owens i think was the best thing even though it wasn't what i wanted at the time it was the best thing that could have happened to me because musically it really op- opened my mind up to all music in general nice and i i learned to to uh, appreciate Mm-hmm. Even though, even though I might not like certain things, sure. not to be so snobby, I was definitely a jazz snob, mm-hmm. and a lot of us that were into jazz were, mm-hmm. because back then, 1963, it uh, we considered it next to classical music, the superior music, yeah. and superior in the sense of what it took to develop to be able to play that music to begin with, and that that's. A- that's a common thing, I, I think, among you know, jazz players. That when I was growing up, that, that was the same mentality. But you see, it's no longer it's it's changed. The influence of jazz and everything else has trickled into everything, and so uh, where at one time you had the Ventures as the premier rock and roll band, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the the uh, the fact that the Beatles came along. The Stones and all the other English bands, that it, it all became a melting pot right. later in the 60s for, for jazz to even be affected by it and yes. rock to be affected by it, yes. that it became this other new animal in, in a Fusion sense. Fusion and progressive. Exactly. And it all started, all these little different arms started Do you think coming that up. If it wasn't for the, the English invasion, that uh, there would have been that melting pot? Do you think things would have been segregated the way Just they were? like if, if, if Buck had never existed, no one, would, no one would... My, people might know Merle Haggard, you know, because Merle lived in that area. Yeah. Uh, but if Buck had never existed, I doubt that it, there would have been a, uh, what would have been known as a Bakersfield sound. Okay, that's strictly a buck. Now, it could have been something else, a Merle Haggard sound, or, or that someone would have come up with something, you know, because Haggard was so, so great, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing, uh, even to me, because I remember him and what he was like. N- nothing bad, but just uh, he was just a very inward, very shy, quiet guy when I was around him. I even got to room with him once or twice, I think, when we were out on the road. Okay. This before he got his own band, you know. And so you he, guys were backing him up. Yeah, we backed him up. Okay. But he was just a very great guy, but just very quieter than me. <laughs> okay. 
I'm not quiet now, but back then and I was, was just very introverted, very shy, uh-huh. you know, and he was, you know, of the same line, you know. It's amazing that out of that, look at what it blossomed right. out into, you know. Right, right. I mean, he's just an amazing yeah. person. Anything, everything related to music, you know. I, awesome. I can't find the words to describe just... That's awesome. What he means to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's another story. But um, uh, how long did you work with Buck? I was with Buck for about three and a half years. Yeah. We did the Carnegie Hall concert the year before, mm-hmm. and that became. Quite a success, you know. And there's a live recording of that. Yes, yeah. uh, even to this day, it's. Do you want to back up and tell me it's, about that? It's it's yeah. one of the records uh, that uh, most people talk about, yeah. and most people don't even know that Japan exists at all. <laughs> but by the time we got to Japan, you see, our music was changing. The things I was playing were no longer just hi hat and, and click. Mm-hmm. I was doing more brush, uh, brush and stick, or double brushes, and maybe. I found a way to use a, a tambourine on the hi-hat, mm-hmm. uh, like during the choruses or mm-hmm. on instrumentals. So things were changing. And was this all your own doing, your own? Pretty well, because... Were, were uh, you left to your own devices uh, as far okay, as Okay, let me back up to the first night that I played with Buck, okay. ever. Sure. Uh, we're up in um, Red, Red, Redding, uh, California. Okay. Okay? I think it's... Not, uh, I I get get them confused. There's Red Bluff and then there's Redding. Mm -hmm. Okay. So our first night was at a club and I'm rooming with Don. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so we're getting our (laughs) uniforms on, our suits. And mine did not fit. (laughs) My my pants were like high water. And I really always hated that. But I'm I'm wearing the other drummers. Okay. And I need to tell you the story about how, how that happened. How I ended up becoming the drummer. Yes, yes. But let me finish this first. Buck walks in just to kind of check, make sure everybody's in order, and check on his new drummer, too. Right. You know? (laughs) And so all this time, we hadn't rehearsed. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, uh, he walks in and just to check, make sure we're all ready to go. And I said, uh, Buck, is there anything that I need to know before, <laughs> before we, we play? Yeah, before we play in uh, a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. <here. laughs> uh, uh, he said, "Well, there's two things. Uh, if I don't like what you're playing, I will tell you. Very point blank, you know. I will let you know." Mm-hmm. And he said, "The other thing is, we play on top of the beat, mm. which at that time." I had no clue what he meant because all I knew was you learn to play on the beat. Mm-hmm. There's no behind or I hadn't discovered. I'd only been playing drums for about five years. Yeah, you know I hadn't had enough experience to really have some depth. Mm-hmm. There was no real depth. What was your reaction when he said that? So my reaction was, "What's he talk to me?" In my mind, I know I said, "What's he talking about?" So he left. And I turned to Don and I said, what's he talking about on top of the beat? <laughs> and, look, and Don looked at me and he smiled and he said, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll feel it. 
<laughs> and so we went on to play that first night, and I never thought about it anymore. Because I was, I was, I was right, right there where it needed to be, without even. Maybe they heard I, it before when they first heard you that, that he's got the feel. That perhaps, perhaps yeah. that's what. Mm-hmm. And you see, I'm, I've, I've kind of thought about that, and I, I, I tend to kind of analyze now that I'm older. I go back and why would I have done this or why this or why that, and especially at that time when I was just a kid, and. Can I guess? Uh huh. Can I guess? Yeah. Is it your jazz influence? Well, yes. Can you... Just, just playing more on top, just kind of uh, well, propelling well, forward? Well, not everybody played that way. Not all jazz drummers played that way. Sure. Okay? Sure. There was one drummer in particular that I was uh, very much influenced by in the beginning, mm-hmm. and Lewis Hayes. Yeah. With Cannonball Adderley's group. Yeah, yeah. And the previous summer... I had spent in uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, staying with a musician that I had met. Mm-hmm. I'd go out and play uh, after hours gigs with him, mm-hmm. uh, and play with and get to meet all these different uh, drummers, and so uh, hear different ways of playing and play with different players. So it was a great ex- learning experience for me. But I also got to hear Lewis Hayes play with Cannibal Adderley's group. The, the, the night, the day after I arrived in Houston, my first time, the previous summer, uh, 62, uh, this pianist that kind of took me under his wing, we met at a, at a, at a jam session mm-hmm. on a Sunday. Yeah. I arrived on a Saturday, went to a jam session on a Sunday. I walked to that jam session uh, in the heat for about an hour just to get to it. Uh, wow. <laughs> I, you know, I was used to walking everywhere in my yeah. hometown. So I found out how to get there, went to this jazz session, met this wonderful pianist, kind of took me under his wing. He drove me back to my cousin's house, and he said, listen, Cannibal Natalie's playing tonight. Are you interested in going? I said, sure. So as it turn, turned out, I ended up spending my whole summer staying in his uh, music room Mm-hmm. which was wall-to-wall records at that time. Oh, wow. So that was part of my education. He'd come in and play this. He said, listen to this. Yeah. Check Philly Joe Jones doing this. Yeah. Listen to Red Garland setting yeah. this rhythm section up. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's how I learned you know, from okay. people like that. Okay. But Lewis Hayes played on top of the beat. I was doing things that most country country drummers just would not do on stage. That's because uh, the show itself kind of allowed it for me to, to make sound effects mm-hmm. and different things. And it all comes from that drummer over there, Shelly Mann. Yeah. He was uh, a very prolific studio guy in L.A., mm-hmm. uh, originally from New York. And he was very well known to come up with different sounds. So, and through a lot of jazz records that I heard, you know, things that I heard him do, I think influenced what I did with Buck in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, here again, Buck was very adventuresome, and so was I. So, if he didn't like something I did, he'd let me know, right? Right. right. So, therefore, I would. But mind you, I had, I had to stay within a certain limit. 
sure. term because it still had to sound like country music. Right, right. Okay, right. but you need you need to check out the uh, Carnegie Hall to kind of understand basically what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, if you, uh, but getting back to Mel King, that was a drummer. Before. Before, before me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened with him uh, was that uh, they did a, a, a concert in Phoenix, Arizona, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he, apparently Mel had like a somewhat mental disorder. Okay. And he, at this particular time, became annoyed. It could have been something that was building up. But at the... At the performance, he decided he would set up his drums up in front of the amps, up where Buck was, mm-hmm. instead of behind the amps, like the drums were normally set up. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be up front in line with the rest of the guys, mm-hmm. I see. rather than behind the lines, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which never bothered me or never entered my mind. Sure. But uh, so... He wouldn't move his drums. The bass player asked him to move his drums. He wouldn't do it. And so the bass player goes to the band leader, Don. Don goes and asks him to move back. He will not move. So the only thing Don could do is go to Buck. And Buck was this tall guy, you know, taller than me. And also strong as a bull. He comes back, picks up the set of drums, throws them off stage without saying anything. Wow. Now, I've never heard about what happened the rest of the night in terms of they might have gotten into a squabble, almost a fight, I would think. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Buck would have floored him in a second. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but I don't know who played drums or if maybe they did the show without drums that night. Interesting. I never, it's funny, I never found out. But that was the end of, of Mel King. And I'm thinking it, it happened in January because I got the call for the job the last week of January. I joined the band the first week of uh, February, I believe. But when they saw you before in Corpus Christi, they might have been anticipating... I I don't know. Leading up to this. I I have no idea. Uh, Don did not say anything to me other than just, hello, nice to meet you. Mm. Even though he had heard me the night before. Uh, Buck had never seen me before. So uh, Dole Holly, the bass player who had been there, he's the only one. And I don't know if Don said to him, hey, go get his... uh, I have no idea. And it doesn't matter, you know. But uh, the main thing is I got there. You got there. Without without really wanting to be there, you know. But it was just one of those things, right place at the right time, you know. Shortly after joining the band, we made this trip to New York City to do the Jimmy Dean show, mm-hmm. which I have a copy of. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to see myself when I was 17. But uh, the uh, so we, we started in uh, Western Canada, worked away across the country and went down to New York. Uh, but um, I've always been a Tony Williams fan, mm-hmm. okay? So are you familiar with this four and more, Miles Davis's four and more, or my funny Valentine, those records from 1964? Roughly, I know okay. a lot of the songs are uh, them, all the, I don't all, own those records. All the early Tony 
isms mm -hmm. that dr licks that drummers learned to play, mm -hmm. that wanted to play like Tony, came basically from that period. Mm -hmm. Okay, especially the four and more because they play. It's all up tempos. Second part of the concert. But the, the reason I'm mentioning this, okay, I joined the band first weekend in February. Miles recorded that out, those two albums, that two weeks after I joined Buck Owens with Tony on drums. And then I met Tony in May of, of that year wow. in New York City when we were there doing the Jimmy Dean show. So that's that's kind of like the cream on the pie. In a very short amount of time. Yeah, because uh, I thought, you know, well, I guess this is the end of me, uh, you know, in terms of I'll never get to hear any jazz, you know. And here I'm going to New York City right to Mecca, <laughs> you know. And I'm thinking, you know, so I, I get down there. I get to New York City, or we get there. We have a few days off, you know, uh, the Jimmy Dean show, had an orchestra that, that had some great musicians that became uh, the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis big band. Mm -hmm. They were, I got to meet Mel Lewis. Oh, wow. Uh, Don Lamond, who had been with Woody Herman's band, was the original drummer. Okay. Uh, we played, we did that show several times, so Mel Lewis was the drummer for that band the second time around. Yeah. So, and I got to hang out with Mel. Oh. That's another story. I, 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 I thought to myself, I'm in New York City. I've got to go down. I've got to find out who's playing where. I find out that Miles Davis's band is playing at the Village Vanguard. Mm -hmm. So I told the guys, I'm going down there. And they're saying, you're what? You know, I said, yeah, I want to hear, I want to hear Miles Davis. Do any of you want to go? Nobody wanted to go. And he says, you know you can get mugged. That's the first thing that came out of them. I said, I don't care. I'll outrun them. It. It's worth it. Yeah, I'll, right. I'll outrun them. So I figured out a way to get to the subway, got the subway, find out where I needed to get off, got off, and constantly the whole time I'm, it's like my butt is just, you know, I'm just scared to death because mm -hmm. these guys are talking negative to begin with. And so they put fear in me before I ever got down there. Right. And nothing ever happened to me. Yeah. But I, I was always on the lookout, got to the Village Vanguard, Go down, and well, I, I find out that Miles was, was down there. Okay, mm -hmm. so the place was almost empty. So I thought, well, I can pick wherever I want to sit. I go and sit like about this close to Tony, but <sighs> behind him, I, I can see his left. Everything he's doing with his left hand, uh -huh. and I'm the last table right behind him. And then there's Ron Carter oh, and gosh. Herbie Hancock. And George Coleman, this before Wayne Shorter, uh -huh. and Miles never showed up that night, which didn't matter because right. Tony, Tony was, was there. there. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sat there, and uh, uh, in total amazement because I was finally getting to see him play things that I'd heard on the Seven Steps to Heaven album, mm -hmm. which I think was the the live concert at Lincoln Center hadn't come out yet. The four and more, and okay. you know, it was that didn't come out for another year, I think. Okay. But the seven steps to heaven, are you familiar with that? No, well, the things that Tony, you need to check it out because okay. that was like some of the beginning. Mm -hmm. Tony had recorded before that with other people, mm -hmm. a couple of other people, but uh, anyway, um, 
So I still, there's no, nobody there. So I go up and say hello to Tony, introduce myself. And he says, uh, hey, let's go over to this back room, which is, I think, out at the front of the club. So we walk over there, and it's just the two of us. Now, mind you, Tony was a year older than me. Yeah, but yeah. still very young. He was, he, was still, he was still a year older than me. So I think that's what kind of drew him to say, let me hang out with this. Yeah. You know, we're the same, kind of like the same age. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I told him who I was, uh, where I was from, and who I was there with yeah. to do this TV show. And uh, uh, I, what I do remember was that he, he told me that he was totally into Ornette Coleman. You know who Ornette Coleman is? Yes, sure. Okay. I was... A devout friend, uh, fan of Ornick Coleman. Mm -hmm. I used to go to sleep listening to Ornick Coleman records. Wow. This before I ever heard of Buck Owens. Yeah. Okay? And I had every record that Ornett had recorded at that time, by, you know. Mm -hmm. And so so we found something that we could really talk about, you know. Right. Cause, and so I remember me having the gall to tell him that I didn't like Ornett's drummers. Because I felt that Ornette's music really required somebody else that was a little bit more advanced than the way Billy Higgins mm -hmm. was a great drummer, right, right. and Ed Blackwell, another great drummer from New Orleans. Uh, and here's this kid from South Texas telling Tony Williams that they suck. <laughs> or not, I take that back. Not not really. You I were at the time, though. At the that's time, what you were saying. Well, I, I, uh, the thing is. And I mean, I won't back off from my thoughts. I thought they were too too traditional for what Ornette was doing. Adventurous, yeah, yeah, avant-garde. Yeah, so, well, some something, someone like Elvin or or Tony, the way they played, what, to to my mind, is what Ornette needed mm -hmm. in that group. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I expressed this to Tony, what and I, I I don't I don't. It's been so long. I don't remember what he said. And my thought was maybe he was hurt because he was close friends with Billy Higgins, mm -hmm. who I met later that night. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> then I, I thought, well, I mean, this is the way. I, but I knew that, that Billy Higgins was a great player, you know, yeah. great drummer. But uh, so we hang out for the whole break. They go do another set. Uh, I'm, I'm still in heaven. And still the club is... Not many people. Uh, during the next break, Tony comes over to me and says, listen, I have some friends I want to go say hello to. I said, don't leave, is what he said. You know, I, I want to talk to you later. Yes. So he goes off, and I'm sitting there just going through about how high I, right. up in the clouds I was just from being there, you know. Sure, sure. And is this what joining Buck Owens did for me? <laughs> you know, it's, take took me to New York City. Yeah. So there I am. So uh, they do another set, and uh, then Tony comes over to me and says, "Listen, uh, Herbie and I are going to go see Charles Mingus, who was a, I was a big fan of, yeah. uh, down at the Five Spot. Would you like to go with us?" I said, "Sure. <laughs> I've got nowhere to go. You know, I'm back to my motel room." You're like, "Will I get mugged?" So, <laughs> so anyway, we're outside. And we're waiting for Herbie. 
And Ron Carter is there larger than life. You know, he was so tall. And he, he and Tony are talking. And I'm just kind of just standing there. You know, it's like, what am I doing here? You know, but Tony gets a cab. Herbie shows up. We all ride together. I sit in the middle of Herbie and, and Tony. Jeez. And and uh, so uh, Tony tells Herbie, um, Willie here is in New York, here in, in town, to do this TV show. Yeah. He's, he's playing with, uh, you know, with, well, I don't know if he said Buck Owens or but he said he's playing with, with a country band. Yeah. And right away, Herbie said, you know, I played in a country band when I, in my early days. He said, I, I did a few jobs back in my hometown uh, playing country music. He said, the thing I like about country music was that they sing with a lot of soul. Nice. And that's all he said. He never said anything else. You know, he, we might have chatted, you know, yeah. along the way, yeah. but I don't recall. The only thing, that's the only thing that sticks in my mind. We got to the, to the five spot right in front of the club. Cab door opens. We're getting out. And the band was on a break, and they're all standing outside. And I'm seeing faces that are, I see Charles Mingus. I recognize Danny Richmond. I recognize Booker Irvin because I had some of his records. A tenor player. I don't know if you ever heard of He was from Texas originally. Okay. But uh, so. This keeps getting better. Your, your world is opening up. Man. I'm, uh, and so we walk in, and Tony and Herbie, were, they were the hottest thing going at that time. And I'm walking with these two guys. And right now, right now I'm thinking, I wonder what all these, they, they were all black musicians, mm -hmm. what they thought about who this kid walking with Tony, you know, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, who, who's that character, you know? Because <laughs> they'd never seen me before and they never saw me again, you know? Yeah. So we walk into the club, Tony, Herbie heads off. I never saw him again. And Tony says, let's sit over here at the bar. And there was a trio playing. Stu Martin, a great jazz drummer uh, that, that was on Quincy Jones' early rec uh, big band records. Right. Okay. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was a studio player in New York at that okay. time. Uh, he was playing the trio. David Eisenson, a classically trained acoustic bass player, who later went on to play... Actually, he's... Uh, there's a picture that I have of Ornette that I took right here. I took this okay. at Shelley's manhole. That's Ornette, and that's David Eisenson there. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and the pianist, I don't recall who he was. So the first thing Tony says to me after we've been there, after we get a drink, a Coke and whatever, we're sitting there, and he turns around to me. He was, I was over here, and he was like, oh, where, where you're at? Mm -hmm. And he turned, he, he was kind of looking at, at, at the band. He kind of leans over to me and says, you want to sit in with this band? I know he was curious as to what I sounded like. Yeah. Like, after the big talk I had about that Ornette needed new drummers. Oh, no. You know, he, I'm sure he probably thought, see, I'm, I'm really curious. I want to hear this guy to see, because he, he's got all these different ideas, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm sure that's why he invited me to sit in, but I immediately declined. There was no way I knew it that I wasn't at that level, you know. Uh, so Tony said, "Well, okay, I feel like playing." 
So he said, come on. So he, we walk around through the club, around the back. Uh, there was a curtain behind the, uh, where the trio was. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a space there as wide as, as this room that you could just hang out at before you go on to play. So he reached in back there, talked to Stu, and they switched places. And Tony, you know. In the middle of the set? And he finished the set. And, you know, they all knew who Tony was and that he was the hottest thing going, happening as a drummer. At that, so that he could do that. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So that happened. And Tony, in the meantime, has introduced me. He was very overly nice to me because he, he didn't ignore me. Mm-hmm. You know, he always made it a point to introduce me to whoever he was talking to, mm-hmm. you know, which I thought was just, just totally amazing. Uh, Charles Mingus came on, and who's in the band? But uh, Eric Dolphy, you know who? Yeah. Okay. Uh, phenomenal uh, alto player, bass clarinet, and and flute. Uh, he died a year later in Europe. But um, all the the classic band from that time was was there. Uh, so I was like in jazz heaven because, I mean, I just went out front. Uh, Tony went off to do whatever he did, and I just sit there listening to, to Mingus. Mingus is banned for that for that set. So at the end of uh, this, we're talking about it's it's already like around four o'clock in the morning, okay? Right. right. Uh, things ended around five. So Tony says, uh, uh, "Come on, we're all getting a cab. We're making sure you get back to your hotel, and we're going on up to Harlem, you know, where where they lived." Mm-hmm. So. We get in the cab, and here Billy Higgins gets in. And I'm thinking, you know, and Billy just, just all smiles, and, and Tony says, this is, you know, Willie Cantu. He's here playing country music on, on a he TV show. He like you. <laughs> no, no, not that I didn't like him. <laughs> right, right, I just felt, I just felt that Ornette it, needed it, a more, a, what I would call a, more advanced drummer, you know, because uh, really... If you look, if you're familiar, Billy pretty well played the same way his whole <coughs> musical recorded career. You can listen to the very early Ornette recordings till the time that he died, and mm-hmm. he pretty well played the same way. Mm-hmm. He was mainly a time player. Yeah. Great time feel. He he. And I would, wonder if Ornette desired that just well, as a foundation. And or exactly. I know. I I I didn't. That did not enter my mind till years later, till I matured and realized probably what was happening, you know. Mm -hmm. Plus, there were no other drummers around other than Elvin just came on the scene in 1957. He still hadn't made Broken Through Mm -hmm. and make his mark with, like with Coltrane, till 1960. So he was kind of like not really in the picture, so to speak. And Tony didn't join Miles Davis till like 62, 63. Uh, when he and uh, and so, you know that was before. I mean, they they came later. You know, they they didn't figure into Ornettes. There weren't that many drummers around with that open concept mm-hmm. of playing time, okay, and playing with a group. Maybe Ornette needed a bodyguard too. <laughs> All the people that wanted to beat him up because of the sounds that well, he was making. Well, you know, I loved him. Yeah. I never, I never found any. Many th- people did. I but. never, I never found anything weird 
he was easier to listen to than Charlie Parker mm. and Dizzy Gillespie, mm -hmm. you know, at that point, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I write, Billy looks at me and he says, country music, huh? And he just smiled, he shook my hand, and that was it. And the conversation led on to whatever. Maybe I was talking about uh, being on the show or whatever, this or that. But it, it, time went by so quick, I was at, at Lowe's Midtown Motor End. I got off. Tony gave me his phone number, address, and he said, call me next time. And I still have it somewhere in my one of my little notepads, the little spirally yeah. notepads. Yeah. You know, I used to carry those around me all the time to write. Th so I still have his name and number uh, from from then, you know. That's amazing. Probably somewhere in a box. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so the next time I went to New York City, uh, I called him up, and he was on his way. I should have called him before I got to New York in advance, but I called him the day that I wanted to you know, hang out with him. But he was on his way to an opera or a ballet. Oh, okay. you know, so he's, you know, he kind of apologized, and he said, well, maybe next time. But I, I, never, I, I never really, and I should have stayed in touch with him, but I never did, you know, because the door was open there, obviously, yeah. you know. But uh, we never, and I wonder if he ever heard Buck Owens, and he said, ah, that's, that's who, who was out here, you know, hey, that's who I met. You never know. You man. know. You never know. So, but anyway, that, that's my Tony Williams I love that. story, and I was like, uh, <laughs> how lucky can you get? After Buck, uh, I moved. I moved to Canada because I was, okay, I was married to a Canadian and a Canadian that did not want to live in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's why I moved to Canada, okay? okay? And I, uh, I never got drafted to go to Vietnam or anything. Uh, I was classified, you know, I forget what the classification was. So I, I, I just moved up there. Uh, by the time, let me say this, by the time I left Buck in... Uh, August, September of uh, 67, this is, uh, we had gone to Japan earlier that year, yeah. okay, so it was that same year, I kind of had been feeling like I needed to change, because I was, could, other than going into the army or whatever, if that ever happened, you know, I, I needed, I felt like I needed, it was, I was 21, I needed to do something else with my life. Mm. You know, uh, I felt I was wasn't improving as a musician. I still had interest in. I wanted to learn to play tabla. I wanted to learn to play hand drums, you know, like uh, African drums. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an interest in uh, in Japanese music when we went there. Yeah. You know. Uh, I used to listen all these recordings that I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. They were of of different faraway places in the world. Yeah. I wanted to check out, see what that music was like. Yeah. I always had an interest in that, and so uh, I moved to Canada. Yeah. Okay. So fortunately, uh, there was a, a clarinetist up there by the name of Henry Cuesta. I knew his family from my hometown. Okay. He was pretty well known. Because uh, he had worked with Jack Teagarden, trombonist, in the 50s, and, tr and toured the world with him. 
And he was of the Louis Armstrong era, that style. Mm -hmm. You know who I'm talking about, Satchmo? Yeah, yeah, yeah Okay, sure. that's real traditional jazz. Mm -hmm. So I met Henry, and because I knew my drum teacher and Henry, the clarinetist, were contemporaries. They'd gone to college, high school. They were, like, really tight. So anyway, he decided to take me under his wing, and once he found out that I was a jazz player, then he started using me on his gigs. Um, there was this club that I that I used to go to all the time to hear him play and other people play in Toronto, uh, the Golden Nugget. Mm -hmm. Not the Golden Nugget in Las Not Vegas. Las Vegas. Uh, Joe Jones, who, you know who Joe Jones, not Philly Joe Jones. Papa. Papa Joe. Yeah. He was the house drummer there. So I used to, I I've 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 got pictures that I took of him myself. He 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 was playing that white uh, Ludwig set, the the marine white marine pearl mm -hmm. that everybody's seen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like about this close to him. I always sat at that first table there, and watched him play, oh, wow. a side view. So he always used to play uh, with special shoes. He always changed shoes. Were they dancing so, shoes? No, they no. were just regular shoes, but he had his playing shoes. Someone stole his shoes one time. He would not play until those shoes were returned. I don't remember whatever happened. But anyway, he, I, after watching him for a couple of months, Henry said, uh, Buddy Tate, who had played in the, in the Basie band, same time as Joe Jones, mm -hmm. uh, is coming in from New York City. Uh, we need a drummer. Do you want to play? And Henry had already heard me play, so I said yes. So uh, this, uh, where's this? Oh, see this set of Gretsch right here? Can you tell right there that I'm playing with Buck Owens? Oh, 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 yes. Okay, uh, I see. It was a big 22 and, and large toms. So that's the same same set that I used to play, to sub for Joe Jones. <laughs> I, sub, I sub for him for a week. He had to go back to New York City for some reason. And yeah. so I, they were happy with me. Yeah. So I backed uh, Buddy Tate up, this wonderful uh, tennis, old style uh, yeah. tennis saxophone. So I was getting an education in the sense I had already played with a more traditional jazz players mm -hmm. uh, in my hometown. Uh, but this is a whole other level. It was right, just right. piano. There was no bass. Just piano, horn player, and drums. Wow. That's just the way they, yeah. the arrangement was. So that was kind of like the beginning of my jazz playing in Toronto. From there, and I, so it, it got me into studying the old New Orleans drummers, like uh, Baby Dodds, uh, Zudi Singleton, because uh, we did a lot. When I started working with Henry, the clarinetist, after that, that week, I became his drummer for about four years until he left to join the uh, Lawrence Welk Band as a feature clarinetist. Okay. So we used to do the Benny Goodman repertoire. So I had, I learned the Benny Good, uh, the Gene Krupa, Sing, Sing, Sing. Yeah, for sure. That was my feature every night. I had to play the toms, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I learned pretty well a lot of the popular tunes from that era mm -hmm. because I was playing with a clarinetist. Mm -hmm. And so I studied 
uh, Baby Dodds, uh, Zudi Singleton, uh, Paul Barbron, another okay. lesser-known uh, New Orleans guy, mm-hmm. uh, and anyone related at, from that period, from the 30s on backwards to the early 1900s, you know. Uh, so, and try to incorporate that into some of the things that I did, uh, not uh, time-wise jazz playing, because a lot of the way those guys played was snare drum. On the snare drum. That's where that that's where the jazz rhythm really comes from. That's really where it came. That was before they had a hi-hat. Yeah, Joe right. Jones was the first one to really transfer that over to the hi-hat yeah. and then to the ride cymbal. Sure. Kenny Clark was the one that really transferred that to the ride cymbal and all modern drumming happened when Kenny Clark basically kind of invented that way of playing. Billy Higgins played very much like Kenny Clark in terms of the ride, you know. That's the lineage there. And then Tony is part of that lineage because Tony played that way too. His ride playing is very much in that Kenny Clark line, you know, if you check it out. But getting back to... uh, I I studied all the old guys because... Uh, I had a chance to use and understand where where drumming had coming from had come from jazz drumming. Uh, so this way, it made me a stronger player in this in this right, group right, with Henry right. Cuesta. So that was my traditional side. In the meantime, I was starting to jam with other guys in in in, Can- in Toronto. Okay. they were more modern. So I I got into you know like jam with guys that were playing Freddie Hubbard tunes or Miles Davis things or Bill Evans, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was going a lot of different directions jazz-wise. Okay. So that was when I was, I'm going to cut that short, yeah. Toronto. So I decided to move back to the States because my marriage didn't work. So I moved to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had developed an interest in African drumming a few years before that. I started trying to teach myself how to play congas from records, and I knew that that was a very big area for Latin music mm-hmm. as well as jazz. So I moved there, and um, within a year, I started studying with this African drummer, uh, Kwaku Dadi, and that's him in that photo up there. I see. And that's me. Uh, that was uh, at the De Young Museum at Golden Gate Park. He did a performance there, and he asked me to do a duo with him. Oh, nice. So, uh, and he played like 10, 11 drums. Jeez. So that's, I had already, before going to him, I had the idea to play like a five, five-tone set of drums, you know. Yeah. And so uh, he was the perfect guy for me to go to. So I studied Ghanaian drumming with him, certain aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So at that same time, I had also had an interest in going beyond the normal, uh, more avant-garde jazz. Mm-hmm. So, and fortunately, I've got recordings that I've made that survive of that, mm. which are not too bad to listen. So sometimes you'll, you'll have yeah. to hear it yeah. just in duo, just a, uh, drums, 
with a cornet player. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, cool. <laughs> nice. But so so anyway, that this this is about okay. That's around seventy two. I left Buck in uh, sixty late sixty seven. So it's just very few few years in between there. Yeah. But while I was with Buck, I was still listening to jazz. Right. I was still right. studying it. Right. But when I played with him, yeah. I just did the gig. Yeah. I didn't try to turn it into a jazz gig. Sure, you know? sure. So, so I never stopped playing jazz. I used to jam with guys in Bakersfield and some of the local. When I was home, I would go out and, and sit in and, and play mm -hmm. with people that way. So mm -hmm. kept it going. Okay. So I moved to San Francisco, and um, I, uh, I started studying with Kwaku Dadi. For a couple of years, and at the same time, uh, I was living in Oakland, California, which is right next door to Berkeley, yeah. which is a hotbed for all types of music. Yeah. And so I started meeting musicians, and so uh, that's how I got involved in in a couple of bands that uh, I guess you might say were in the beginnings of third world type music. Hmm. You know, using a lot of instruments, percussion instruments, from South America, from Africa, from India, mm -hmm. and everybody played more than just their main instrument, mm -hmm. and so that's where I started utilizing multiple percussion. Uh, okay. The congas with the drum set. I had my paiste gongs, you know, like humongous gongs. I had bells. I no longer have any of that <laughs> since I came to Nashville. Yeah, <laughs> I got rid of it. But this is kind of like my bare bones jazz set now. Sure. But it, I, I can show you pictures yeah. uh, of my humongous setup, uh, and it, it was we played. Uh, all the music was basically improvised mm -hmm. of the moment. Wow! So that's that's about as as much experimentation as I ever did was during that time. I went from uh, Buck Owens to play in traditional jazz and getting back into the more modern thing. Yeah. And then when I by the time I made it to the Bay Area, I was totally all over. <laughs> yeah, anything yeah. and everything, so to speak. And it was a, a very um, inspirational time musically for me because I was finding all these musicians that were willing to try different things. Yeah. And so uh that's that led me to other people. Uh, it led me to playing with. Uh, did, have you ever heard of uh, Art Landy, pianist? I don't. Think he recorded so. for ECM uh, back in uh, the mid seventies. Okay. Did a couple of albums, I know. Okay. Uh, which led me through his band. Led me to Mark Isham, trumpeter that okay. nowadays does a lot of movie scores. Wow. But he. Uh, he uh, uh, hooked me up to all these great jazz musicians, and one of them was Pee Wee Ellis. You know Pee Wee Ellis is? I don't, I don't. Okay, Pee Wee Ellis is, uh, and that, that, that was at the subway station in downtown San Francisco. That, that I see. photo yeah, yeah, was I see. taken. Okay, now Pee Wee is the same, we're the same age. I might be maybe a few months older than him. But he's also from Texas. He's from the same town as Buck is. <laughs> <laughs> Sherman, Texas. Okay. But Pee Wee worked with James Brown. 
Oh, right, right. When I was with Buck, yeah. he was playing with James Brown. And he wrote uh, Cold Sweat and uh, one or two other tunes for James Brown. So we hooked up. I started playing in his band through this other connection. And then he started playing in my band. And then all these other great jazz players kind of came. You know, it just kind of just started happening that I was meeting all the right Pharaoh Saunders, who had worked with John Coltrane's last mm -hmm, band. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was from the Bay Area originally. Yeah. I played in his band for about two or three years. So you had a little bit of a connection. And Eddie Henderson, this great trumpet player who had been in Herbie Hancock's uh, sextet Jeez. in the early 70s, yeah. was also there, yeah. hooked up with him. I played with him in a lot of different situations. He also played in a group that I kind of put together to play some jazz gigs. Uh, so it all kind of... It comes I, together. Yeah. So I went through that whole Bay Area period, and all the time I wanted to move to New York City. So I went, did that for a couple of years, mm -hmm. decided that I did not... I was still a working drummer, and I, I, I did not want to be a starving jazz musician, okay? Yeah. So I wasn't willing to just stick it out there and go through all that. And so I met someone from Tennessee, so that's how, that's how a singer. Mm -hmm. So that's how I ended up moving to Nashville okay. in the summer of 63, mm -hmm. okay? And... 73? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no. Uh, 83. 83. Because I already passed the 70s <laughs> That's right. in, okay, in yeah. California. Okay, so 83. Okay, 83. And so, uh, and I, by that time, I also had a heavy interest in Scottish pipe and drumming from people that I had met in New Jersey. Yeah. I had started studying with somebody there. And so, came to Nashville and actually really started, co-found the first pipe band in Nashville ever. Uh, and it's all my doing, seeking people out. Yeah. And started with one piper and one drummer, and that's how we started the National Pipes and Drums. What year was that? That was, excuse me, late 60, uh, I'm 60, I'm still stuck in the 60s, 83. Okay. Okay. I came here in the summer of 83. By the fall, we were already having our first pipe band rehearsal. Nice. Okay. That's how quickly things evolved. Yeah. Um, I was I started I was on the on the road at that time for a couple of years, the first two years that I was in town. I was actually out on the road with a, a road band playing country. So <clears throat> the Scottish kind of thing came into happening and got heavily into that. The jazz thing kind of subsided because I found out that Nashville at that time did not have the like-minded musicians that I was used to mm -hmm. in New York City or San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So I had to find another way to uh, kind of, another outlet. Sure. You know, a totally sure. different outlet. Sure. You know, than jazz. Mm -hmm. So I went to Scottish music because it was a totally new thing. Uh, and so through that, I corresponded with drummers in Scotland. Um and got information that way. I, when I'd go to Canada to visit my daughter, I would take private lessons with some of the couple of great wow. Scottish pipe band drummers mm -hmm. from Scotland there. And so that's how I started. And I used to teach 
any new coming drummers into the pipe band mm-hmm. of what I would learn, I would pass it on. So that's how I started teaching. Okay. Uh, that's what the got through Scottish the pipe band. Yeah. So I did that for 25 years and I've been out of it, you know, maybe seven or eight years now because of my hearing problem. Okay. I get vertigo. And so I can no longer carry a drum, you know, on a harness and march and play because I can't, I can't walk in a straight line to begin with. Mm, wow. Okay. I can function normally. Yeah. I just can't march and carry a heavy drum anymore. So, but anyway, all between those 25 years, I've, uh, I worked at the National Palace, the old one, yeah. where Randy Travis got started. I started there in 89. Okay. I was there till they closed it in like 2005. Wow. I was the house drummer there. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, okay, I was the band leader was two weeks short of 22 years of being there. So, that was my workplace. I used to take off to go play Scottish festivals and this and that. So, that was that whole time I was at the palace, I was involved in Scottish pipe and drumming. So, do, what, so when you're teaching now, do you still teach that? I, well, no, I teach, no, I all. Oh, I was teaching in the band, okay? Yeah. Uh, there was two bands. We started another band called the Tennessee Scots Pipe Band, mm-hmm. which became Rivals, okay? Because I dropped out of the Nashville band for a few years, okay. and then I had someone else that was interested in starting another band. So that's why we started the Tennessee Scots, which became more successful than the Nashville band. But it's kind of back and forth. So anyway, I've had to drop out I see. completely, I see. and I stopped teaching uh, Scottish drumming in in the band okay. in either band but with private students now though, none of them that? are interested in that style of drumming okay but I still keep it alive I have a piper that I get together with once okay. a week and we, we practice but um, that style is uh, very different than the American rudimental style hmm. and the the rudiments you might find a lot of the same as American rudiments but they they're played different the rolls are not like open doubles, right. like the open rudimental style. They're, everything is, all the rolls are buzzed. Okay. Okay? okay. And accents within the rolls mm. is very dominant. Mm. You know. And I will give you a quick little demonstration here. Cool that. In terms of, can you see the pad here? I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Okay, the grip is slightly different for the left hand. Okay, let me raise this up so I think so you can see a little bit of it. Here we go. Yep, we're good. Okay, so all the rolls are buzzed. And you use the thumb to activate the left stick. Yeah. See? Rather than the traditional grip is the American style is this, okay? Where you play all your rolls opened. Well, these are just there, keeping the stick in place. And you release down here, see? The right hand, you you don't use the pinky. For some reason, somebody decided the pinky does not figure in on this style of drumming. So, and it's all fingers. So notice how my fingers are moving 
up and down. Exactly. It's that hand motion. And studying with Chuck Brown, that's the technique that he taught, was use extending and collecting the fingers. Interesting. See? So, uh, I'll play something. That's just like a, a basic March-type beat. Mm -hmm. Notice a five-stroke roll can be, instead of, mm -hmm. it's, but it can be played long or short. Or short like that, see? Or you can open it up. So you have that, you can use that within a drum score. Uh, for example, like, Hear the long and the short, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's one of the, that's one of the differences, and everything is built off of the shuffle type feel. Oh. Uh, more the uh, dotted eighth, sixteenth, rather than the uh, triplet feel, you know. Mm -hmm. But more and more, the more modern style is leaning more towards a, a triplet feel. Dun, 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 dun. Mm -hmm. And paradiddles are swung that way. Uh, oh, nice. Or it's supposed to. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those are. And okay, uh, one important thing the drag, instead of being played in the same time as the phlegm. Yeah. Okay. This is the Scottish drag. It's a dead stroke, what we call a dead stroke. So you just, and okay. not a lot of pressure, you just bring the stick down and keep it from, you'd be surprised, you think, well, how can you hear that? What kind of sound? Mm -hmm. On a drum, you still hear, you'll still hear buzzes. Yeah. You'll hear buzz, buzz, but you can hear, if you listen real close, you can hear a little bit. Yes, yeah. See, yeah, yeah. it's not completely dead. Yeah. But it's a dead stroke song. You're holding that down. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So it's it's one of the hardest rudiments to to uh, control. Still. Man, I, unfortunately, we are out of time. Okay. But I'm glad we got to this because I wasn't anticipating. And We're I still didn't tell you about Nashville. <laughs> didn't tell me about Nashville, but you know we talk a lot about Nashville on these things, but. I think we covered a lot of things that okay. we haven't been able to discuss okay. before in your experience with Buck. Let me say this about Nashville, that I am a working drummer here in Nashville. You are. I play down on Broadway yeah. uh, quite often. I played Tootsie's yesterday morning. Yeah. Past, past two mornings, I was down at Tootsie's. Yeah. I play Robert's Monday nights, you know, 10 to 2. So I'm still playing country music, yeah. play jazz here at the house on Tuesdays, and anything else in between. You're teaching. Yeah, and I teach... I teach in Lebanon at Topper's Music. And in here and, as well. and, and here at home, too. So. Willie, I appreciate you, man. You're welcome. My pleasure. So there it is, everyone. There's my interview with Willie Cantu. I'd like to thank him for taking the time and letting me come over to his place and hang out and uh, talk a lot of history. As always, thanks to Mike Jackson for his help getting this all out to you. And uh, you can see more of his handiwork for our new YouTube channel. And uh, we appreciate everyone listening and checking us out every week. 
So thanks for listening, and we'll see you around.